If you turn in your Bibles to Titus, Titus 1. It really is no overstatement or understatement to say that Americans care about their health a lot. From some studies in 2008, I found that we spend on average $6,400 per person on health care each year. We each average nearly four medical visits each year, and we fill three and a half billion prescriptions annually, just in America. Those are just the legal prescriptions, right? When Congress last summer proposed an overhaul of the American health care system, it was the top news story for months. People protested vigorously on all sides of the debate throughout the entire country. In any church's prayer list, ours included, is going to be dominated by requests for ailing members or family or friends. Why is that? Why does that so consume us in 21st century America? It's because our physical health and thus the medicine that preserves our health is something that is vitally important to us, literally, vitally. When we're physically sick, it's almost instinctive to schedule an appointment with the doctor. Or if it's an emergency, we'll rush to the hospital. Right, I can see people mouthing those words because you know, you know that's how we think. But friends, when things aren't going well in our spiritual lives, maybe bitterness at a family member, or struggling with a secret addiction, or a tendency to verbally abuse those around us, we have some more options, don't we? We might call up our mother or father or sister or buddies, get their opinion. We might buy a book from a Christian store. We might listen to Dr. Laura on the radio. Well, not anymore. we might just try to bravely carry on and minimize the problem and think to ourselves, well, that's just my little battle. It's my little cross to bear. I've just got to you know, get through this. No one else really cares what's going on. But often, that spiritual ailment spreads or deepens, and then our entire life is consumed by it. Other people get hurt. And we're worried that everything we care about is coming apart at the seams. That's the point when it usually hits us. I need to go to the doctor. I need to go to the pastor. (laughs) I've got a problem. I think I need some help. Sadly, you know, at that point, sometimes when we've waited so long, the problem, whatever it is, is so severe in our lives that pastor has to recommend some drastic action. And then at that point, you or I might shy away. Well, now wait a second. I, a pastor, are you, are you sure you really know what you're doing? I, I, I mean, I may have made a mistake, but don't you know it was really their fault? I, I don't think I really need to go through all that. It's not at that point yet. 
So maybe we put off that treatment when we need it the most. And we ignore our fellowship with the Lord. And maybe we even stop going to church because we can't even look pastor or one of our other spiritual leaders in the eye. Sounds like a really unhealthy process, doesn't it? For many Christians, maybe some of you here today, the prospect of having your spiritual leaders know your flaws and recommend changes to you is absolutely terrifying. You don't want anyone to know those unfavorable things about you, much less pastor, Pastor Ken or Pastor Matt or someone else here. Perhaps you've been burned in the past by a spiritual leader who proved themselves untrustworthy. And so you find it very hard to put your spiritual oversight into anyone's hands again. My friends, there is another serious factor in the battle for your spiritual health. The human body fights not only its inner maladies like cancer, but also outside influences like viruses. You and I have enough sin problems on our own, <laughs> but we are also assaulted every day by deadly streams of poison flowing into our minds and our hearts. Images, ideas, desires, philosophies. Some of it is obviously toxic. We can tell just by looking at it. And sadly, we still might play around with it like a, a kid with a cherry bomb. But some of it is much more subtle. And we may go years before we realize that we have been infected. You might ask at this point, Zach, I know what you're saying, and yeah, I can tell already some of that's going to ring true, but you just don't know. I, this is tough. How does God expect me to follow all his commands, carry out all the responsibilities he's given to me, family, work, all, all the things I have to do, and still somehow keep my mind and my heart pure in this wicked age? It is tough. The book of Titus was written to people like you and me. There were normal people, sinners who'd been redeemed by Christ's saving work on the cross. And they have to, we have to struggle daily with sin and its effects all around us and in us. Paul begins his letter to Titus. We're going to be in the first chapter of Titus today. You can see Crete there. It's an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul began that letter, the one helping to strengthen, Titus was the one who was helping to strengthen and organize the church that was there. And Paul began with a description of the role of the church's spiritual and administrative leaders called elders. We find that these are the people whom God intends to help church members stay spiritually healthy. They were and are normal people too. They've just been given a sacred and sobering responsibility to help God's people in the church stay spiritually healthy. 
And I'm not going to go over the description of an elder's character. We've done that before. A spiritual leader is held to a standard. It's not a standard above everyone else in the church. It's saying this is the standard for Christians. This is the standard for people who want to be mature Christians and aspire to leadership in the church. I'm not going to go over that. Look at verse 9, though. Actually, look at verse 5. It says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It seems that the spiritual leadership at this little fledgling church in Crete had not been completely set up yet. And this was an urgent matter that needed to be straightened out immediately. That the verb when it says straighten out was a verb that they used back in their day. It was a medical term, or at least was used in a medical context, to describe when a doctor, a physician, would set a broken bone. It was, you know, sometimes a painful process, but it was something that needed to be done. Something that was out of order needed to be made straight, needed to be aligned. And Paul is telling Titus, you need to align this church. This church needs its spiritual leaders. Because Titus was not the, from what we can tell, was not supposed to be the long-term pastor of Crete. He was supposed to set up the spiritual leadership of that church. Because he was in Paul's place while Paul went on to carry the gospel ministry in other parts of the world. Look at that in verse 9. This is the description that Paul gives of the spiritual leader. He says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The elder, the spiritual leader, not only had to have godly character, as was laid out in verses 6 through 8, he had to stick to the script, so to speak. He's expected to be fully committed to the doctrine of God's Word, which would enable him to do two things that we see in verse 9. First, he would build up church members in the faith, and he would defend church members and the faith from outside attack. And this second one, friends, was especially important because the church at Crete was under attack. Paul begins our passage, verses 10 through 16, in verse 10, with four. A simple word, but uh, it really connects it to that instruction describing the character of elders, and especially verse 9 where it says, here's the two main things that an elder or spiritual leader is supposed to do. And the spiritual leader is supposed to encourage, foster the spiritual health of the people that are under their charge. And I really see several main things that the spiritual leader is supposed to do. Spiritual leaders are supposed to fight infection in the church. We can see this infection here. We have to analyze it. We have to see what was damaging these Christians at Crete. I'll warn you up front. It is harsh. It's not politically correct. And it's one of the times when I'm glad Paul said it under apostolic authority and not me. And we can just look together at what he said. 
First of all, these false teachers, this infection that was spreading through the church at Crete, these false teachers preach a false doctrine. Not surprising, right? You probably could have written that one yourself. But look at verses 10 and 11. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Verse 14b says they were, they were the type who they commanded things, but they actually rejected the truth. They were people who had false doctrine, and they were spreading that false doctrine among the people at Crete. Verse 16a says that they claim to know God. These people claim to be Christians. They didn't come right out and say, oh, we're atheists. Or that, you know, Jesus never existed. They were, they were a lot more subtle than that. They claimed to be part of the Christian circuit. And although there's no evidence they were actually members of the church at Crete, they were on the outside trying to get in, trying to have influence. Maybe they were neighbors of those of those church members at Crete. Maybe they were friends. Maybe they were family members. Maybe they were a local personality who seemed to embrace Christianity to a degree, but added with it some pagan elements or some elements of Judaism. They mixed things with it. They mixed truth and error, and it made it very difficult for the Christians to determine, are these people on our side, or are they the enemy? It appears that these heretics, Paul says there's many of them, were abundant in Crete. And as you see, some of them were of the circumcision group. Those were Judaizers. Those Jews said, well, we're not going to reject Christianity entirely. No, I I think there's some value there. We might even call ourselves Christians. We know God, too. We're all on the same page. But, you know, if you're going to be a Christian, they would tell these Gentile believers... If you're going to be a Christian, you know, Jesus, Peter, Paul, they're all Jews. So really, you need to follow the Old Testament law. Really, yes, you need to follow what Jesus and the apostles have said, but you also have to follow the Old Testament. You have to follow the dietary restrictions. You have to follow those regulations and those rites and those ceremonies. There's all kinds of ritual purity, purification things that you need to observe as well. And you might say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't seem that powerful. It doesn't seem that influential. I, if a Jewish person came up to me and told me I had to follow all the Old Testament dietary restrictions, I'd laugh at them. Well, we're 2,000 years removed from when Christianity was just a Jewish uh, offshoot of Judaism. And the Cretan Christians maybe were caught up in that. Maybe they thought, well, you know, these people seem, they seem to be so wise. They, they seem to have the market cornered on, on what it means to be truly religious. Maybe we should follow after them. Maybe we should listen to what they have to say. Maybe the gospel isn't just faith in Christ. Maybe you have to have some of these works mixed in there as well. And you can see how powerful this was. I won't go there, but in Galatians 2, Paul talked about how even Peter got caught up in this and compromised part of the gospel with these people who wanted to include Judaism as part of Christianity, as part of the gospel. 
But actually, friends, we don't have the exact nature. If you read through verses 10 through 16, Paul never comes out and says, this is exactly what they're teaching. It's not really what his point is here. His point is to lay out, yes, they are teaching false doctrine. They are resisting authority. But it'd be like somebody, like if a doctor today, if you were visiting a third world country, some, a country that was just, where disease and death were rampant, the doctor wouldn't tell you, now look out for this disease, and this disease, and this snake that can bite you, and this, and this, and this fly that carries malaria. They would just say, take basic safety and health precautions, and I'll pray for you. And that's what Paul is doing. He's not giving the individual specifics of every heresy that was there on Crete. There are probably a lot of them. But he's laying out the specifics. And as we'll see, he'll tell you a little bit about these people, about their personality and their character too. It's possible that one effect of the false teaching was to undercut whole families, as we saw in verse 11. It says they were, they were undermining, they were undercutting entire families. Whole families were going after this error and falling by the wayside. And it may have been, one of those effects may have been to promote unbiblical thinking about the roles of men and women or family members inside the family. Because that's a lot of what chapter 2 is about. But secondly, we see not only that false teachers preach a false doctrine, but we see that false teachers promote an ungodly lifestyle. These are the verses that are pretty hard-hitting. Verse 12 says, Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Pull any punches here. In summarizing the character of these individuals, he quotes a famous Cretan prophet who described his own countrymen back then as basically low life scum. This was the stereotype of Crete that most of the Roman Empire held. These were one of the people that you just you just didn't want to run into. Even the Romans thought these people had no redeeming value. And Paul says that this more or less hits the mark. You say, well, Zach, we're not supposed to do... We're not supposed to stereotype by nationality. That seems a little bit questionable. How could Paul just say every Cretan is that way? A liar, an evil glutton, a, a, a brute... Well, the fact is that Paul was writing under inspiration, and we're not, for one thing. But he wasn't necessarily saying every Cretan is that way, and there's no hope for them. Because if you go on to read the rest of the book, he lays out character requirements according to the gospel that he wanted the Cretan Christians to live up to. So it wasn't impossible for a Cretan to better themselves and to change their behavior something that had to be done through the gospel and he's saying naturally these people are not really good people and he says these false teachers are standing examples of these type of pagans this type of immoral lifestyle for one thing look at verse 11 it says they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain they were greedy 
And isn't it amazing how often materialism and dishonesty join hands with other sins? These pompous con artists were hoping to extract as much money as they could from those who were listening to their philosophies. And we also see they were rebellious. They were obstinate. They rejected the authority of anybody but themselves. Ultimately, see, we'll look at verses 15b and 16. It says, To the corrupted, to those who do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. That word detestable is a very strong word. Abominable. These people are an abomination to God. Paul summarizes and concludes that their ungodly lifestyle, even if they weren't teaching anything, even if the doctrine that came out of their mouths was right, and it wasn't, but their lifestyle was so corrupted, so perverted from the inside out, that he concludes these people don't know God. They say they do. They claim to walk in your Christian circuit. They claim to have spiritual insight. They claim to be able to advise you on spiritual matters. But they don't know God. Their lifestyle, their values, their immorality shows that. So with such evil and tenacious opponents like these, how could the church at Crete or our church today hope to thrive, especially if false teaching has maybe already started to infect? Can spiritual leaders really turn the tide against Satan's strategies? A painful but sometimes necessary procedure is called surgery. And it's no different when someone's spiritual life is at stake. Sometimes it's vitally necessary. So spiritual leaders sometimes have to perform cancer surgery on the church. We see one of those ways they perform cancer surgery is to forcefully oppose prowling wolves. They stand up to the false teachers. They don't back down. They don't stand on their own opinion. They don't stand on their own force of their personality. They stand on God's word. They're willing to do anything they need to, biblically, to protect the people under their charge. Verse 9 says, refute, refute those who oppose it. But I really like verse 11. It says they must be silenced. Again, a very vivid word. It actually means to gag, to muffle, to put your hands over someone's mouth to stop them from saying anything else. That's how important the spiritual life of the church is and how important the spiritual leader's position is. They had to actually resist the false teachers. Spiritual leaders should never resort to name-calling or questionable tactics that maybe bring shame to the name of Christ. But they do have two weapons at their disposal to help preserve the health of the church. The first of those is preventing false teachers from having an influence in the church. These 
pagans, these false teachers, must not be allowed to spread their diseased doctrine among God's people. It's poisonous. The shepherd has to defend the sheep, right? So the spiritual leaders will make sure that, for one thing, compromising ministries are not supported, so that teachers who promote unbiblical doctrine are never allowed to speak here, and that they're not given a chance to influence you in an official capacity. A spiritual leader doesn't give a stamp of approval to something that God has already said he does not approve of. That's one way to forcefully oppose these wolves. But another way is to proclaim God's truth outside the church. And it's interesting. There's some interesting ways I was thinking that spiritual leaders can do this. They could write a blog. They could write a newspaper column that promotes God's biblical truth. They might sit down with a false teacher over lunch and show them from Scripture what is true. They might even challenge the false teacher to a public debate to show how God's Word opposes them. And certainly, wherever they go, spiritual leaders are examples of Christian character and pure doctrine. I have a lengthy passage that I think is a great example of this type of silencing, this type of gagging. It's not something that you picket their house necessarily. You don't call them names. You don't throw rocks through their window. You present the truth so powerfully, so forcefully, so purely that they're led to silence. Look at what Jesus did in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 46. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, round two, right? The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in all the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with, all your mu- with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see him giving God's word, not just his own opinions? And while the Pharisees were gathered together, I love how Jesus goes on the offensive here. Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Proving that the Messiah was going to be God, as Jesus was. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus knew how to do this. Jesus was the ultimate perfect example of a spiritual leader. And spiritual leaders are never going to be that perfect and have that command of God's doctrine as Jesus did. 
But still, it is their job to not shy away from the task. They're not supposed to leave you on your own. A shepherd doesn't go run and hide in his house when there's wolves out. They're supposed to help. They're supposed to preserve the spiritual health, the health of their people. But what about when that infection actually gets inside the church? What about when the people in the church, church members who love God, are caught up in that false teaching, as was evidently happening in Crete? Sometimes they have to not only forcefully oppose those prowling wolves, they have to firmly correct the straying sheep. This is certainly not the most popular part of a spiritual leader's job. And it's not the most popular part of my message, I can tell. But the fact is, as we read, not my words, but what Paul says in verses 13 and 14. After he says, this testimony is true about these false teachers, he says, Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply. And some have said that this phrase, rebuke them sharply, is too strong to use of spiritual leaders correcting their brothers and sisters in Christ. It has to refer to the false teachers being censured. And I will tell you, I have studied this passage for weeks and weeks. It's very difficult to determine that, but I think... I think that I understand the flow of what Paul's saying here. He's not saying cor- sharply correct the false teachers because you have to look at the next couple of phrases. Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. The goal of the rebuking, a sharp rebuking, but the goal of that is so whoever is being rebuked will be healthy. The word sound means healthy. Healthy in the faith. So whoever, Titus or the spiritual leaders who are going to do this rebuking, have the goal of the person who's being rebuked of their spiritual health. It doesn't seem to fit the portrait that Paul has just been painting of the false teachers as people who claim to know God but deny Him by their actions and are detestable. And in fact, you have to look at the next phrase. Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith, but also that they will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. So if we're going to say that rebuke sharply, which, let me take a second, that is another medical term. So I didn't pull this this uh, medical theme out of my hat. It seems to come from the passage to some degree. That was the act of a surgeon excising something. It was a sharp, it was a cutting. So, yes, literally, rebuke people with a cutting way. Rebuke them in a way that cuts out what's bad. If we were going to say that it was referring to the false teachers, we'd have to say, this is what Paul's saying. Rebuke the false teachers sharply so that they can be spiritually healthy and so they can stop listening to false teachers. It doesn't make sense. The only alternative that I can come up with from God's Word, what I believe Paul and the Lord Jesus is saying, is that sometimes when God's people are caught up in error, when they refuse to repent, when they won't listen to counsel, 
Sometimes there has to be a sharp rebuke. Something that cuts out the, ex- the diseased flesh. And look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 11-13, before you write this off and say, now that can't really be what he means. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. Expel the wicked man from among you. Paul is telling Titus that the spiritual health of the church is so critical that someone who keeps following that false teaching needs to be shaken out of their slumber so they can be sound in the faith again. And if they still refuse to repent, the church has to begin the grievous but necessary process of church discipline with the goal of restoration. Spiritual leaders do not enjoy correcting their flock. In fact, they don't even enjoy opposing the wolves. But it is part of the job that God has given them. They recognize that sometimes it's the only biblical option. Thankfully, official church discipline, I know that's sobering, but thankfully that's very rare. More often, the treatment is simple and quiet. However, the longer we wait, the more our spiritual ailments will fester. Whether it's a sin we're hiding or an ungodly philosophy that we're starting to buy into. The spiritual leaders of a church have to be vigilant in keeping their flock sober-minded and alert. So not only do the spiritual leaders fight infection and do cancer surgery, but they do preventative checkups on the church. The spiritual leader should encourage others by sound doctrine, as verse 9 says, and then look at 2.1. simply says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. The spiritual leader has to be someone who, by their life and the chances that they get to actually teach, are encouraging you, encouraging their flock to be strengthened in the faith. Remember, sound means healthy. And the spiritual leaders of the church are always going to be concerned that your life is in tune with God's Word. That doesn't mean they're nosy or holier than thou. It means they're doing their job. And in verses 15 through 16, look at 15. It says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. Paul draws a line here. And he understands that true purity doesn't just come through following regulations like maybe these false teachers were saying. Or even just having a good feeling inside of yourself that I'm okay, you're okay. That's not purity, friends. True purity comes from having your sins washed by faith in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on Calvary. The gospel is at stake here. It's not just man's opinions. The mind mind and heart of man can be transformed by God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Romans 12:2 says. So a spiritual leader will try to instill those principles of gospel living in the people that he leads. 
so they can be spiritually healthy. Spiritual health. Imagine this scenario with me. You're at a grocery store, and you happen to bump into your family doctor. You've been going to him for a few years now, so there's a good relationship of trust. Your family likes him. He's, you know, he's made the right diagnosis before. And you're standing in line at the grocery store. It's Meyer at 6 o'clock, let's say. And you're exchanging pleasantries. But then you see his face grow a little bit more serious. And he says, you know what? I've been noticing you coughing. I- I've seen you, as we've been standing in line, coughing quite a bit. And I'm concerned. And you say, well, yeah, I mean, I've been coughing, but I thought it was maybe just allergies or a cold that wasn't, you know, wasn't going away. And he feels your forehead, and he looks at your color, and he doesn't like your color, and he says, you know what? I'm going to write you a prescription right now on the spot. And I want you to come in next week to come and see me because I want to you know, do a more thorough examination. I want to run a couple tests. I want to see what this is because I don't think this is just a cold. So make sure, you know, take care of yourself. Fill this prescription. I'll see you on Monday. I'll make room for you in my schedule because I think it's important. What's your response? Do you go home and tell your spouse how you just can't stand that prying doctor? He, he wants to know all your business. Or do you shrink away from him at the supermarket, mumbling in shame and, and, and never make that appointment after all? Because you're just so ashamed that he would point out that you are sick. Or do you stand up to his face, telling him, well, you're not the perfect picture of health either? Of course not. We're used to having medical professionals diagnose our condition. We're used to paying attention to that, taking it seriously, because we know they have our physical well-being in mind. Then why, friends, are we so skittish about listening to the diagnosis of our spiritual leaders who have our spiritual well-being in mind? Your doctor and your spiritual leader both want to help you before your problem becomes worse. Put this in the context at Crete. False teachers were hurting the church with their unbiblical ideas. And we know that, as we've heard before, ideas have consequences. Whether we absorb them indirectly, Maybe it's the attitude of your unsaved friends about parenting and you're adopting their methodology without even knowing it. Or whether we're directly taught those false ideas, like a TV personality who tells, to, tells us to look inside ourselves and find the spark of goodness there. These ideas sprung out of false teaching can have a devastating influence on our behavior and on our beliefs for the early church at Crete and for our church, Community Baptist, here today. Spiritual leaders are often God's way of coming to the rescue of His people when they're floundering. If you've fallen into the trap today of minimizing the role of your spiritual leaders or ignoring their counsel, I urge you to listen to Paul's words as we close in chapter 2, 
verse 15. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Paul tells Titus, one of the spiritual leaders of that church at Crete, These then are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Do not let anyone disregard you. He's saying, Titus, you have the authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ behind you. Don't shirk from your task. Don't backpedal. Encourage people. Rebuke them when necessary. Resist those prowling wolves. Fight the infection that's starting to creep in. Preserve the spiritual health of the people under your charge. Help them. And friends, what you and I have to ask ourselves, because I don't come to you as a spiritual leader, I come to you as one of the flock. What we have to ask ourselves is, do we really want that help? Are you letting yourself today be helped by your spiritual leaders? When they come up to you, and let's just say, they come up to you and say, Friend, I heard you say the Lord's name very casually. Seems like that might be blasphemy. And I'm concerned because I want you to take God seriously. Do you get offended? If they come up to you and say, I really want you to help in this ministry, but I think you need to work on your tongue. You seem to be very sharp tongue, and I want you to help here. But here's some scripture. Maybe their prescription is they give you some homework, give you some scripture to read over. Maybe their doctor's appointment is they want you to come in for a couple weeks of counseling so they can get to the bottom of what is bothering you. Maybe they warn you that that person that you love to listen to on the radio or watch on TV has some very harmful false doctrine. How do you take that? Friends, a doctor can't strap you down and haul you into the hospital and force you to receive treatment. Neither can a pastor. But no one resents a doctor when they make a diagnosis for the physical well-being of their patient. And I think we owe our spiritual leaders at least that courtesy and attention when they look you in the eye and encourage you or have to rebuke you and say, brother, sister, I think this isn't matching up with God's word. And they make that diagnosis, at least give them the courtesy and attention and respect that they deserve. It's for your spiritual health. God has appointed them in our lives, in my life as well. And I have been on the end of that rebuke. I have been on the end of that instruction, of that encouragement. And it has been nothing but good in my life, as many of you can attest as well. Let's take this seriously. God put them there for our spiritual health. And as much as we spend money and time and attention on our physical health, we need to honor those who, have, who God has put in place to help us with our spiritual health as well. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for your word and the way that like a two-edged sword, it cuts through our excuses and lays bare what's in our heart, Lord. And I ask for your hand to be on every person in this room today. And for those, Lord, perhaps who are struggling with this or who are struggling so much because they just don't understand what it means to submit to a spiritual leader because they've never submitted themselves to the gospel of Christ. Lord, I pray for them especially that they would see their need of a Savior and that their heart would be smitten and the light would be turned on for them spiritually. And Lord, for all of us, help us not to be proud. Help us not to be self-sufficient. Help us not to be so independent that no one can tell us when we're wrong. Lord, we don't want to be fools. We want to be Christ-like. And I ask for myself and for everyone in this room that we would be submissive to the roles of spiritual leaders that you've put in our lives for our good. Lord, be with our spiritual leaders that they would uh, honor you and they would know your doctrine and they'd be able to carry out your tasks boldly but gently at the same time. Bless us this week, Lord. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.